Open your Bibles back to First Timothy chapter 3 if you didn't keep them open. As we begin this, it would be remiss of me not to thank you for your many expressions of love and support to my family and I. Over this last week, particularly, many of you know my, my father died. He went home to be with his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I appreciate the many kind expressions of love and support for myself and my family. Uh, it is... Uh, certainly creates a void in my life and in the life of my family and the life of so many that he served. But, trust me, he's experiencing the fullness of joy in the presence of Christ this morning. This is not going to be a funeral service. That was yesterday. And it was a service, I think, that wonderfully and appropriately honored my dad and pointed people to the Savior. But I do want to address why I'm preaching today, because I had several people say, you shouldn't preach today, or why are you preaching today, or it's okay for you not to preach today. And I want you to know it would be okay if I didn't preach today. That would be perfectly fine. But it's also okay that I do. And frankly, this may sound a little bit corny, but both by the example and the exhortation of my dad, he would expect me to. When he buried his mother... He preached the next Sunday. Several years ago, when I first came to Pendleton Street Baptist Church, I was doing several funerals, sometimes as many as three and four a week. And I was talking to Dad on the phone, and I said, Whew, I'm about preached out. I may need somebody else to preach Sunday. And he said, Son, the only funeral that should keep you out of the pulpit on a Sunday morning is your own. And since mine hasn't happened yet, I'm grateful for the privilege to be able to come and frankly preach to me more than to you. But it is important that we all be attentive to the Word of God. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church. Now it was a church that he had planted. It was a church that he had invested three years of his life in. Then as he continued to minister and went to other places, he was about six, seven years away. And all of a sudden he heard of all the difficulties that had fallen upon this church. And so he sent Timothy back. Timothy was now left there and he was given the duty and responsibility to be the elder, the pastor, the lead teacher, if you will, of this congregation. And Paul has given him some instruction, some encouragement that comes from the Holy Spirit, God's Word, through Paul, to Timothy, and to us about what it means to be an ordered congregation, what it means to be a church that is is on track, a church that honors and glorifies the Father. And that means that it needs to be a church that is well-led. And you can't read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. You can't read Titus. You can't read any of the pastoral epistles, the letters written specifically to those who are in positions of church leadership without recognizing the high calling and the high responsibility and the great task that leading a congregation is, and that it be ordered and structured. It is good and fitting today that we're turning our attention to the role of pastor or elder or overseer in the life of the church. And it's important because it matters. Leadership matters. Jesus was the greatest leader, and he is, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, the ultimate shepherd, the great shepherd, the pastor. And under him there are under-shepherds, if you will, other pastors who lead local bodies of his congregation. And it's important because in First Peter 5, that passage said, listen, 
As an elder, speaking to elders, Peter says, you are to pursue this cheerfully. You're to pursue this out of an innate desire. And you're to pursue this not under compulsion, but with joy. Because you have the role of being an example to the flock. You have a higher expectation. Because though these are, and we're going to get to qualifications in a minute, expectations for every believer, with two exceptions in this list, though these are how every Christian is supposed to live, you have a higher expectation because you ought to be able to say, as Paul said to the churches that he led, follow me as I follow Christ. And so there are qualifications that we're going to look at. Leadership matters. But I will repeat what I said last week when we were talking about deacons, the amazing thing about these qualifications that they're not amazing. They're what God expects of every follower of Christ. They're what God expects of every mature and maturing believer. So why is it called out? Is there some sort of double standard? There are two in this list that's not an expectation of every believer, but those specifically in this role. We'll get to that. I'll let you figure out what they are as we come to them. But the reason it matters is because Jesus said when he was talking to the disciples and he was encouraging and building them up, he said that no student ever surpasses his teacher. The student becomes like the teacher when he is fully grown. And so there is an expectation for leaders. Now I do want us to look at the text and I want us to spend a lot of time this morning, frankly, in verse 1 and we'll start verse 2. We're probably not going to get much beyond that today, but this is important stuff and we need to grasp it. You need to know what the expectation for pastors are, for elders are, for overseers are, for several different reasons. Number one, you will have more than one in your life in all probability. Now, Pendleton Street has been throughout its history an unusual congregation. Amen? How has it been unusual specifically? We had Pastor Dr. Benjamin Davies Hines, who was called the Pendleton Street Baptist Church. And he served for right at 20 years as a pastor of this church. Following him, we had Pastor J. Dean Crane. Dr. Crane served for just over 20 years at this church, 21. After him, we called Dr. Malcolm Rivers. Dr. Rivers served for just over 20 years in the life of this church. For 60 years, you could have been born in this church and been 60 years old and only had three pastors. Isn't that amazing? In a time when, peace, when pastors were moving from church to church every two or three years, these men invested their lives in the church. Jack Causey came next. Fourteen years he served as the pastor of this church. Bill West came next. Nine years he served as the pastor of this church. Larry was here for five years, and then God called me here. Anybody know how long I've been here? You know how long I've been the pastor of this church? Uh, longer than four 19 years. Next May, it will be 20 years as pastor of this church. Now, I know some of you are, say, that's enough, okay? <laughs> 20 years is plenty long. That's the pattern we've established. Let's not go beyond that. But I will tell you that there's going to come a time when you're going to have to call a pastor. You're going to have to know what to look for when you are calling a pastor and teacher. But I will tell you this also, as we will see, not next week, but the week after that, Every church needs more than one. Every church needs more than one. No pastor is called to lead in isolation. Every time you see the word elder in the New Testament with two exceptions, 
which are addressed to two specific individuals, it's in the plural. And often the direct object of appointing elders is in plural and singular churches, multiple elders in a congregation, multiple pastors in a congregation. And I will tell you personally, one of the greatest joys of my life is to work shoulder to shoulder and side by side with other men called of God to serve God and to lead a congregation together. And so you need to be aware, we all need to be aware of what these qualifications, expectations, and duties are in the life of a church. And it may be one day that God will call you away, that he will move you to some far northern forsaken land like Traverse City, Michigan. (laughs) Chrissy's here today. Or he may send you somewhere else. And you will need to know, all right, what should I look for when I look for a congregation, a congregation that is well-ordered, a congregation that is compelling, a congregation that is well-led. And so we're going to take some, uh, some moment. I want to read again the first verse that introduces this section by Paul to Timothy and by the Holy Spirit to us. This is a trustworthy saying. This is a statement that says, hey, this is something you should be paying attention to. This is something that you can depend on, that you can count on. And he goes on simply with a statement that if anyone aspires to, we'll come back to that in a moment, but if anyone reaches out or stretches out toward the office of overseer, then it is a noble task that he desires. It is a fine task, New American Standard. I like that translation. It's a fine thing that he aspires to. It is a good, it is a worthy thing that he desires Several years ago, I was pastoring the Deaf Church in Greenville that met in the old Pendleton Street Baptist Church building. And while I was there on a Wednesday night, we were having Bible study, and there was a man that we had invited, and he had finally come, and I was driving him home after the service, and he said, oh, that was good, I really enjoyed it. And we were just kind of talking, riding down the road, dangerous to do, but we succeeded. And he said, so I got a question, what do you do? I said, what what do I do when? What are you talking about? He said, your job, where do you work? I said, well, I work at the church. I'm the pastor of the church. He said, oh, no. I mean your real job. What, what, what do you really do? And I have found not only in that context, but in many contexts, there's a good bit of confusion about the role of an, a pastor, an elder, an overseer in the church. And I want us to just look at the title. First of all, in this text, he says, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, the Greek word there is episkopos. We'll put it on the screen in a moment so you get a, a feeling for the word. And it is, in the King James Version, translated, and others, translated bishop. It means overseer, one who provides oversight to or leads. But we've always called our pastor, pastor, haven't we? I remember when I first became a pastor, 26 years old, South Texas, Outside of civilization, all right? And the, my congregation did not know what title I needed to be called. Was I supposed to be called pastor? Was I supposed to be called preacher? You know, how, how was I to be addressed? Pastor was perfectly fine with me. I wanted to be Pastor Marty. I've got people who call me preacher. Preacher Marty. No one has ever called me Elder Price, okay? Frankly, that's because there was an Elder Price. An older Price who was a pastor in a church, and nobody has ever called me Bishop Price. So are we the, are we the same? Are the titles interchangeable? And I would submit to you that 
when we talk about what a pastor does and you talk about his titles, a lot of time the job description can be found in the title, and that's the first point on your outline. The job description can be found in the title. We're accustomed to the word pastor. So let's look at that one first. And I want to look, take you to two passages of Scripture and make a statement. The statement is we have three titles that emphasize duties and responsibilities that are talking about the same position or the same office. The first is the exhortation that the Apostle Paul gives to another young preacher. His name was Titus. He was serving on the Isle of Crete. And Paul writes to him in Titus chapter 1, he says, All right, I left you here. I left you in Crete for a reason. You might put what remained in order. Obviously, it was a church out of order. And to do so, you needed to appoint elders in every town. Greek word, presbyteros. You need to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And if anyone is above reproach, he begins the qualification, a one-woman man, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And then he goes on, verse 7, he says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. I want you to see what he's doing there. He's using elder and overseer, speaking of the same office. Do you get that there? So an elder and an overseer are the same office. Well, that's not the only text. In 1 Peter that we read just a little while ago, Peter says, I'm an elder and I'm writing to elders. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then he gives them a command. The command is to shepherd, poimen, to shepherd. And another translation of that word is to pastor. To pastor the flock of God that is among you. And what is the next phrase? Exercising oversight. That is the same word as episkopos, as an overseer. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not, shame, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And so he's, he's calling all three of them there. Listen, here are your roles and responsibilities. Sometimes it's in the form of a noun. Sometimes it's in the form of a... Um, a, a verb or a command specific, but you see these repeated. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's on his way to die. His expectation is that he's never going to see these people again. And he calls the Ephesian elders. By this time, they're elders in Ephesus. And he calls them down to him, and he gives them exhortations. And what he writes is that Paul gathers the elders. There's the first word. He calls them overseers, and he exhorts them to shepherd or to pastor, or to care for the church in Ephesus. That's in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 28. So when Paul affirms that the man who aspires to the office of an overseer desires a good thing, he's referring to one office. Now, multiple people can have that office, and people with different and complementing strengths can have that office, but what we're going to get to in this passage of Scripture is not job description, it's quality of character, it's the kind of man God uses in this role and in this position. And so, bear with me, I want to dig a little bit deeper into each of these titles. The first one, I'll start with the one that we're most familiar with, this pastor. The Greek word is poimen. It means shepherd. And it focuses on tending or shepherding or caring for. A shepherd as he, as he cares for a sheep, a man as he cares for the congregation that God has entrusted to him. And it includes the concept and the idea and the instruction that we are to guard 
the flock of God. We are to guide the flock of God. We are to enfold the flock of God. And ultimately, Jesus is our shepherd. And He is the one who calls under shepherds. But let's look at those really quick. To guide. As a shepherd guides its sheep. The role of this person, at least to a great extent, is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to go where directed by the Lord Jesus Christ. To lead, if you will. To remain within the prescribed boundaries. It is to be one who specifically strives to hear the voice of his shepherd and then to pass that voice on to the sheep that are entrusted to him. John chapter 10. It includes guarding. Have you ever seen sheep uh, in in real life? I'm not going to go into this very much, but I do follow a running blog. And it was so funny. There was a video in there of a woman who was running in Europe. And she was just running. And when she ran past, when she was running down the road, she ran past a couple of sheep. And they started to follow her. And all of a sudden, all the rest of the sheep that were in that pasture started to follow her. And she runs, and she looks back, and there's all these sheep behind her. And they're not her sheep. And she stops, and she talks to passersby, and she says, I I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm stealing somebody's sheep. And people just kind of laughed and patted her on the back and said, don't worry, the shepherd will find them. And as the story goes in the blog, she ran all the way through the heart of downtown with about 40 sheep following her through downtown. Uh, Can I tell you that if the shepherd is missing or you have a shepherd who does not shepherd, we tend to follow whoever comes along with the loudest voice or the most appealing or the most activity with no sense of clear guidance. Shepherd has a very important role in guiding and in guarding. Guarding can include correction, Sheep wonder. Sheep get lost. Sometimes it is the role of a pastor to see someone in distress or to see someone who is overtaken in a fault or to see someone who is struggling in a specific area and to lovingly, as a shepherd cares for a sheep, go and address those concerns with the hope of correction and restoration. Certainly in the areas of doctrine, as a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul tells them guys unequivocally, you got wolves among you. Some are there now, some are on the way, and you've got to guard the flock of God. You've got to keep them true and base and sound in, do- in, in doctrine. And simply caring. A shepherd cares for his sheep. He doesn't resent them. He doesn't begrudgingly lead his sheep. The picture there is loving one another. Leading the congregation to love one another. To set a pattern for the membership of caring. When someone experiences trauma or crisis, loses a job, loses a loved one, frustrated in relationships, caring appropriately. It requires patience. And frankly, can I tell you the aspect of pastoring that's real important? It's just a day-by-day conversation. It's a day-by-day walk. It's consistent, continual contact. It is nurturing people that God has entrusted to you. It is often, the character of a congregation is often shaped in the small, slow, repetitive acts of love and service. So shepherd, this really speaks to the heart of the pastor. 
He's a man who loves his people, the people that God has entrusted to him. I do talk to pastors. I talk to pastors on a fairly regular basis. And I do not know what the Lord is doing in my life, but that has increased significantly of late. But I was talking to a man the other day who said, I say the other day, this was probably two months ago. He said, I'm convinced that God called me to this church, but I got to tell you, I think he's calling me away from this church because I don't like them. I don't like them. I don't like them. I don't like what they say. I don't like them for this reason. I don't like them for that reason. And he's a pastor who resented his congregation. I don't know what your counsel would be, but I told him to get right with God or leave before he messed the church up. A pastor who does not love his people is not representing Christ to the congregation. A pastor whose sermons are filled with anger and are filled with, good word, look it up, vituperation. A pastor who criticizes and snarls and snaps. A pastor who is hard to get along with on a regular basis. I have my days. But a pastor who has his pattern of life, his resentment toward the people that he has given to him, is unqualified, as we will see shortly, to serve in the role of pastor. A pastor as a basic prerequisite in representing Christ to his congregation has to love his people. Has to. And so a pastor has to be a man with a capacity to love. Love those who love him, that's easier. Love those who hate him, that's harder. And yet it is what we're all called to do, is it not? To love one another, to love our enemies. So pastor is the first word, but let's look at elder. Do you have to be old to be a pastor? When my eyes got bad, and I was, I was telling Sharon this morning, put the words big on the screen because uh, I can't read the, the text in the Bible that I brought. Uh, when my eyes got bad, I went to the doctor, and he said, presbyopia. And I'm like, I know enough Greek to know what that means. It means my eyes have gotten old. Presbyteros is the word. It means elder, old, aged. It can mean simply one that is more mature. In our context, obviously, it means one who has been walking with God. He is spiritually mature. He is not a novice. We'll see this in a few moments. He is not wet behind the ears. He is not a new believer. This is one of the qualifications for a pastor, a leader in the church that is not for the pew. You want new believers in the pew every week, every day, every month. We want continually to see people coming to know Christ. But when it comes to leadership, there has to be an example that they follow. There has to be some experience and knowledge that is shared from someone who has walked that path and studied and had those experiences and has seen the Word of God and tasted and seen that it is good, has seen it live and work in his life and is able to convey that to other people. The idea of being elder, you don't have to be a prerequisite age. It doesn't say you have to be 18. Some of the greatest pastors I have ever known have been 16, 17, 18 years of age. But because of their love for God and because of their study of God's Word and because of their total and complete yieldingness, even though in age young, they were more matured than their age and they were 
a more deeply entrusting of themselves to God than many or most in their congregation. This is a sign of spiritual maturity. Elder also carries with it the idea of one who has acquired knowledge and experience and then passes it on to others. We see it clearly in the life of Paul. I didn't turn you to Acts 20, but sometime go look this up. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to those elders and he said, You can remember that I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now my dad, Luther Price, was a great example of this. Yesterday at the funeral, one of the ladies from Pope Drive Baptist Church came up after we were being greeted in line, and she said, we have a great pastor. His name is Matt Denuser, and he is a great Bible teacher. And on Sunday nights, after Matt would get through preaching, several of us would just gather around your dad, and we'd get sermon number two. And he would just share what was on his heart, truth that God had given to him, knowledge that God had given to him, until Crawford would finally say, Luther, that is enough. Let's go. A teaching heart, one who cares about passing on knowledge and information to others. By the way, I'm going to use dad for a lot of illustrations. Just buckle down, bear with it, and please be gracious to me. Elders preach. We'll see when we get to verse 2, 3, and 4, particularly that they have to be gifted to preach. They have to have a capability that is given by God. But at the very least, they have to be prepared I remember when I first surrendered to the call to preach. A call to preach, Dad said, is a call to prepare. You will be going to school, son. He didn't always choose in my school choices. But he said, you have to be prepared. And of course, Scripture says that. We are to build up a reservoir of knowledge and experience. And preaching can be from the pulpit, but it is also one-on-one conversations in the hallway. I... I, I, I didn't warn anybody I was going to do this, and I'll, I'll call out different examples along the way, I'm sure. But I walked up at a fellowship not too long ago, and Scott was talking to some folks in the church, and they were expressing some concerns about something. I don't know, I wasn't part of the conversation, but he was just unfolding Scripture, talking about the goodness of God, applying Scripture to life. You understand that it is the heart of conveying truth, biblical truth, in multiple circumstances. And it is counsel. The Word of God is sufficient. It is sufficient for everything we face, every aspect of life, which is why we have biblical counseling, which is why we need to be competent to counsel in the pew, which is why we need to be trained and equipped because we are committed to opening the Word of God and applying it to the life of people in every aspect of their life. Thank God for His for Scott and his ministry here. I thank God for there are many of us who will seek and study to know his word. This speaks of his mind. Pastor speaks of his heart and his care for his people. This speaks of his mind and the knowledge that he conveys. The third word is the word in our text. It's overseer. It's bishop. I kind of like it. If y'all want to call me Bishop Marty, that would be fine. I'll take it. But it's not normally what we use when we call someone in this role the role that Scott and I have in this congregation. It's not normally what we call this role, but it is a descriptive term, and we need to look at it. An overseer is one who gives oversight, episkopos. 
is the word. One who looks over and looks across. It means one who evaluates. One who leads, sets a direction. One who models and moves people forward. But also one who evaluates. He looks with care to make sure that we are staying on track. That we have not messed up our priorities. That we are doing what God calls us to do. That we are being the people God's called us to be. That we are organized and functioning. We're looking for strengths. How is God being glorified here? We're looking for weaknesses. Where are we not experiencing the power of God? We are giving oversight to the life of His church. It includes examining individuals for membership, listening to their testimony, knowing that they have a relationship with God. It may include the difficult task of leading the congregation to remove from membership someone who has chosen and prefers to choose their sin over loving Christ. It makes sure, we make sure that the church does not lose sight of its mission and orders its priority well. This role speaks of the minister's hands, one who leads, evaluates, and administrates or administers the body of Christ. All of this is wrapped up in the role of pastor, elder, and overseer. And we use, typically, the word pastor. Lately, in Baptist life, there's been this concern. Many churches are going to elders as a title rather than pastors. And I was talking to a guy that I saw yesterday. But I was talking to him a few weeks ago, and he said, I, I, just, I just can't. I just can't. I, I've always had pastors. My title is pastor. I'm always going to be pastor. And frankly, I'm going to be the only pastor in our church. And he used a phrase that I had heard my dad say at one point. He said, any animal with two heads is misformed and can't function. You can only have one head. And I looked at this dear brother, and I said, brother, the church only has one head. According to Scripture, the church only has one head. Are you guys familiar with the verse? It's found in Ephesians chapter 1. The Who is the head of the church? The Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. How many under-shepherds can the church have? As many as it needs to accomplish its purpose. Amen? As many as it needs to accomplish its purpose. He said, well, I just don't like the term elder. And I was irritated by this point, and I said, well, brother, I thought you were a New Testament church. Because every leader in every local congregation that is addressed directly in the New Testament is identified as an elder. Do you know where the word pastor is used as a noun to speak of church leadership? In Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, God gave gifts to the church. He gave, he gave the prophets and the apostles. He gave pastors, teachers, poimen, poimenoi, pastors, teachers, and evangelists as gifts to the church. That's the only place where that role is identified by that name. Everywhere else, he's called an elder or a Episcopos, a bishop, an overseer. And I'm just going to tell you, they're interchangeable. They're interchangeable. Now, I do want to talk about the administration role because it's the one that's addressed here. Probably four years into my pastorate here, Sunday morning, before I was going in to preach, a man came into my office and he was mad. 
I've, I have been convinced, and I think it was Suzanne that told me this. I'm not sure. I won't call her out too bad. It may not have been her at all. But I have two dominating spiritual gifts. I can make people mad, and I can put people to sleep. And so those are, those are, those are my predominant abilities. But evidently, I had made this guy mad. And he came into my office angry, red in the face. And he said to me, and I won't. I'll just tell you this. I won't even tell you what it's about. But he said, listen, your job is to preach on Sunday morning and to preach on Sunday night and to teach on Wednesday night. We'll take care of everything else. And I said, I'm sorry. I can't do that. That's not my job. My job is to preach. And my job is to teach. And my job is to love and to care and to minister. And my job is to evaluate and oversee and guide. And to make sure that as a congregation we are walking in obedience to the principles and the teachings and the truths of God's Word. And there are things that are a matter of opinion. That's where the multiplicity of leadership comes in. There are things that we can work through as we evaluate what is the best and highest expression of this or the best and highest expression of that. But I'm not going to keep my hands out of it and say, y'all take care of that because I'm going to give an account to God for every decision this congregation makes. Whether I'm directly involved or not directly involved. And this is an area, I don't have to be directly involved, but it is an area where I'm going to tell you that there are some things that we can do and there's a wide expression there, but there are some things we absolutely will not do. And I just got to tell you, it wasn't extremely well received. He looked at me and he said, you're just the preacher, you're going to come and go. This is my church. I'm going to be here long after you're gone. And I said, my dear brother, I'm planning on being here as long as God lets me stay here. And I hope that you are here for a long time. We just need to understand that God's called me to be the pastor of this church, and I'm going to be the pastor of this church as one who gives account to the Father. Now let's see what we can do to resolve the issue with that understanding. Now, I don't say this to give any credit to myself because I am pretty sure I just made myself look a whole lot better than I looked on that particular Sunday morning. But I want you to understand something. The role of leadership in the church matters. And there, it takes some courage. It takes the willingness and the ability to face angry people, to hold people accountable, to confront, to reprove, rebuke and correct, but to do it all for the glory of God and to do it all motivated by the good of the flock. Does that make sense? And when I ask, does that make sense? I'm not saying, are you smart enough to understand it? I'm saying, am I smart enough to communicate it in an understandable manner? I really want us to grasp that because it's a good role. And you will notice that this whole sermon, we've only gotten through verse 1. Of 1 Timothy chapter 3. But I do want to at least introduce the next part before we close. And we'll close in just a moment.
This isn't a task for everybody. This is not a task for everybody. As a matter of fact, even though there's no job description inherent in this text, it's all about who can serve in this role. What is the character of the person who serves in this role? That's what verses 2 through 7 are all about, the qualifications and the expectations. And I, at the very least, want to address the issue of a call to the pastorate, of a call to being an elder, of a call to being a minister, if you will, a call to being an overseer. Again, in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone, what's that word, aspires to. Are you familiar with that word in the Greek? It is uh, orego, orego, aspires to. It's like Oreo, but it's not, okay? Orego, if anyone aspires to. And I will tell you, the literal meaning is to stretch out toward one. We have Bristol with us uh, this weekend, and it has been a great joy to spend time with this girl. Uh, anytime I get close to her, she turns away. And if I get too close, she will orego her mom. She will stretch out to Chrissy. Mom, rescue me from this guy over here. And she will reach out for her. That is exactly the meaning of this word aspires to. Somebody who is reaching out, externally reaching out for a task. If anyone is reaching out for the task of being an overseer, it's a, it's a noble thing. It's a fine thing. It is a worthy thing that he desires. The second word that's used for desires in this text is a completely different word. Orego is only used three times in the New Testament. It does have usage in extra-biblical writings in Greek, obviously, so that we can get the, the meaning well. But the word desires is epithumeo. Epithumeo. And it means... From a, a passionate craving, a hunger. It speaks for that desire that rises up from within a person. It is used multiple times throughout the New Testament. Best described, according to A.T. Robertson, as an inward passionate compulsion. Where the first word is something that you do outwardly. The second word is something that you feel inwardly. I think probably the best summary of this is a man who desires to lead in the church and pursues it on the outside because he is driven and compelled by the Holy Spirit on the inside. I've had men ask me, uh, I think God may be calling me to ministry. How do I know? How do I know? It's a great question. In the Old Testament, Abraham had no doubt God called him, did he? Moses had no doubt. Burning bush. We all want a burning bush. That would be great. All right? In the Old Testament, God called and set aside part to men to specific tasks. What about in the Gospels? Jesus called the disciples. You, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. In the church age, beginning in Acts, we have a different dynamic. We have the same task being accomplished by the third member of the Godhead. It is the Holy Spirit who plants in someone a desire to be used by God for God's glory as a leadership in the local congregation. It is a hunger, a desire, a conviction, a communication that I believe is placed into your heart by the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm gonna, we won't even get to verse 2. We're just going to stop at verse 1. When I was 15 years old, my dad was a pastor at Metropolitan Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We went to a youth conference in Hammond, Indiana. Jack Howell's church, David Howell's, was preaching 
I don't remember what he was talking about. I remember it was a great experience. But I was just there as a 15-year-old kid, not particularly bright, not even, frankly, that engaged in things. But man, there was a night when I was there, the Holy Spirit just impressed upon me, convicted me, and it was unmistakable to me. He said, I want you to serve me. I want you. And of course, I interpreted that, I heard that as, I'm calling you to be a preacher. It's what I knew. It's what my dad did. It's what I saw in ministry. And I surrendered. And I said, God, I'll go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do. I'm yours. Now, that should be the call of every Christian. That should be the response of every Christian, right? Yes, don't, don't leave me yet. That should be the responsibility of every Christian to say, Father, I'm yours. Here I am. I belong to you. I will go and I will do whatever However, whenever you command me to do. But there was this sense of a narrowing of parameters and a loss of choice that said, this is the task. And again, I began to, after I got back, I told Dad, and Dad said, I am thrilled and scared to death. I'm thrilled that God wants to use you in His ministry and that you've responded to this. And of course, he's Dad. So he said, it's not an easy task. I'm not sure you're up for it. But God is up for it if you'll walk with Him and depend upon Him and be obedient to Him. So I began to negotiate with God. I'm like, well, being a preacher is hard. My favorite services were when the missionaries came. I want to be a missionary. I'll get to travel and go different places. And I began to negotiate with God. And I was taking Spanish in high school, so I thought, that's a, look, look what God's already doing. I'm taking Spanish, and so I'll just be a missionary to some place that speaks Spanish. And Mexico's close, and it's warm. I like it. And so I began to negotiate with God and say, all right, clearly this is what God has in store for me. Can I tell you something? Most of the time, you don't know what all God has in store for you until He leads you through that door, through a winding path that involved deaf churches, through a winding path that involved being a church planter, through a winding path that continues to wind, thanks God, thanks to God, He continues to lead. And I pray that there is not only me, but I pray, and not only Scott, but I pray that there are you, that there are people in this pew who will say, I want to be used by God to lead in His congregation for His glory. That you have responded not only to His call to salvation and repentance, but that you will respond to the next step of His leading in your life day by day, week by week, month by month. Amen? Isn't God good? Father, we want to be a compelling congregation because You compel us to come to You and glorify You. You compel us to... Continue your work in the world of seeking and saving the lost, of presenting man, every man perfect and complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we're looking at a specific office in the church, it's not for everybody. I know that. I understand that. I believe this congregation understands that. But there are those that you set apart to this specific task. And I pray, Father, that you will raise up from this congregation men who will step into this role and fill this role. I pray, Father, more than that, as I look across and see these young people in this church, I pray that you will 
nurture them, be preparing them now, quickening their hearts to you, those who don't know you, that they might be saved. But also, Father, that you will be equipping those who you are intending to use in specific roles and specific functions, but just to broaden our desire here. Father, we want to be people who serve you faithfully in whatever task you call us to do. So, Father, be glorified in us. Convict us and guide us and shape our character that our lives will reflect yours. Help us to care for one another as a shepherd cares for his sheep. Help us to teach and instruct one another, faithful, instant, in season and out of season. Father, help us to give oversight and leadership and administration that we might be organized and safe and orderly as we embark on the greatest mission that any congregation could ever have, the mission of glorifying you by making mature disciples of all nations, starting in the West End of Greenville. It is in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you.